only source of true delight, whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. It's taken from First Peter. If you're what well, to use the book that's in the pew, the Bible in the pew, that's page one thousand fourteen. Um, otherwise, look kind of to the back of your Bible. Find Revelation and keep backing up, and you'll get to First and Second Peter. So, First Peter, chapter one. We'll begin reading verse thirteen. Though we're really going to focus on verse fourteen and following. Thirteen is a kind of overlap uh, verse, and we dealt with it last week. We have talked about two things in a new perspective for the uh, or critical perspectives for the new. Uh, Year One is hope, as it indicates there in the bulletin, and this one is holiness. Now, hope has a street value, so to speak, right? People understand the word hope and how critical hope is for every human being. Holiness, not so much, right? You're not going to find a lot of secular books talking about holiness. In fact, I bet you will never find a secular book talking about holiness, though they may talk about hope. Uh, Holiness is... A bit of a foreign term, though we throw it around a lot, but uh, it's, it's a central, central statement in Scripture. In Leviticus, other passages in the Old Testament, and Peter draws from that in saying, you shall be holy for I'm holy. It's really a summary, in a way, of the whole of the Christian life as being like God uh, in His holiness. And so we want to get at this. as It's such a central thing that we have this hope that God's, uh, brought us to through the resurrection of Christ. And this hope issues in holiness. Always these two come together. If you have the true hope as it is in Jesus Christ, you'll begin to be a holy person. And without that hope, you cannot be a holy person. Um, but these things come together in the Christian life. Hope and character, basically. So beginning with verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you should be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, According to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, 
since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Four, quoting from Isaiah 40, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Thus the reading, God's holy, living, powerful word. Let us pray. O oh Lord, we come to this word that your Holy Spirit has given us as we read in Second Peter that the Spirit carries the prophets along. He, he, he brings them to this point of being able to say the word of God, to speak the word of God. We believe all scripture, Lord, is expired by the very mouth of God. God breathed. And we pray, Lord, that this word will be precious to us and that you will prove it out in our lives to be the living and active word that changes us, that brings us to see more of your glory and to conform more to your ways, that we may be a glory to your name and we may enrich this world with the grace of Jesus Christ. This we ask for his sake. Amen. Uh, the outline is in the uh, bulletin, uh, starting there on page uh, whatever, <laughs> yeah, nine. <clears throat> um, so this just makes you more antsy if I'm spending too long on the first point or whatever. <laughs> no. Um, the first thing, though, you see as, as he's talking about this subject of holiness is do not be conformed, nonconformity. Right, we we all and there, there's a part in each one of us, I think, that somehow likes to be a nonconformist. You know, I'm not going to do what everybody else does. Well, you get to be that as a believer, not conforming to this world. This is the same word that you find in Romans 12:2. Some of you are familiar with. Do not conform to this world, but here, don't conform to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, if this phrase of former ignorance is a way to describe their former Gentile life. Life as Gentiles, life as pagans, okay? Ignorance is regularly associated with the pagan life, and it means an ignorance of God, that you didn't know God. Sometimes that's how they put it, when you didn't know God. And so it's not, you can kind of summarize this as, as saying ignorant passions and it's not an innocent ignorance, you know, like I'm ignorant when it comes to know how a computer works or it's not an assessment of their intellectual capacity, you know, like you use the word ignorant hillbillies or something like that. Um, but l listen to Paul talk about this ignorance in Ephesians 4. It's kind of an expansion on this idea of ignorance. He says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. There you go, Gentiles again. In the futility of their minds... They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So you see, it's, it has to do with ignorance, being alienated from God, having a hardness of heart toward God and His ways, and giving themselves up to sensuality and greed and impurity. So that's what he's talking about when he says the passions of your former ignorance, the alienated from God uh, desires, 
okay? Unrestrained impulses. It's another way to describe your former rebellion against God. The thing is, if you don't know God, then desire becomes your God. Just inevitable. Desire will become your God. Desire for self, and that shows itself in so many different ways. It could be any kind of combination of desire for wealth or power or entertainment or uh, security, popularity, sex, alcohol, drugs, revenge, anger. Uh, Down in chapter 2, verse 1, he talks about many of those putting away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Well, these are... Destructive, blind desires. So ignorant desires are blind and destructive desires. It's when my desires are more important than God or more important than other people. These are passions of your former ignorance. And the idea is these no longer have control of you. You you have left those things. You've turned away from those things. Don't go back to it. Don't submit yourself to those things that you're no longer a part of. Uh, Stay clear. Do not be conformed to those. And it's interesting how we, we tend to equate many times desire with love. But this kind of sinful desire is not only incompatible with love, it's completely against love. It has nothing to do with love. This kind of sinful desire, if you say to desire, hey, if you do that, if you go after that, if you look at that, if you think that way, that could really hurt your relationship. And desire just sneers at you and says, and that concerns me how? And and so what? Desire doesn't ever ask that question. It's not concerned about relationship and commitment and sacrifice and spending yourself for someone else. No. Desire mocks love and despises love. It attacks love. It wages war against love. It's interesting, and we now have uh, a couple of little, little ones. Um, Our little... uh, Hudson is staying with us, uh, stayed with us last night. And the interesting thing of watching this little uh, just past one-year-old girl is that whatever is available to get, she'll get it, you know. doesn't matter what it is. Totally indiscreet. I mean, it could be something that's going to blow her up or hurt her. It doesn't matter. I'm going to grab this. I'm going to grab that, you know. And, and the, the same way, it doesn't matter what they have. They'll put anything in their mouth. Anything. Or they'll walk anywhere. They'll walk into a pool. They'll walk over a cliff. They'll walk in the street. No discretion whatsoever. That's how sinful desire is. Has no discretion. No concern. Uh, No uh, concern about who or what is hurt or destroyed. Desire just wants to rule. David says, desire goes after anything that satisfies the drive. So this ignorant, dark desire has no conscience, has no rudder. There's no one driving. It's a car whose gas pedal is stuck and there are no brakes and it's headed into a crowded outdoor cafe. That's what sinful desire is. And so Paul is saying, don't get into that car. Don't get back into that car is the feel, you see. Don't conform to your former. You used to be in that car. To be driving that car, riding in that car. 
But we put our lives in the hands of sinful desire. It's like a father putting his daughter in the car with a drunk 17-year-old. It's no different when you give your life over to sinful desire. It's absolutely reckless. That's why Paul can say in 2 Timothy 2, flee youthful lust. Flee sinful desire, whatever its form, whatever it's going after. And pursue, he says, righteousness, faith, love, and peace. You see the opposite, righteousness, doing the right thing to other people. Love, peace, uh, reconciliation with people. And of course here, Peter, don't be conformed to those uh, former passions. Well, there's nonconformity, but there's also family likeness. Holiness is made up of nonconformity, and holiness is made up of family likeness. Now, this phrase he uses, like as obedient children, verse 14, is, uh, it, it includes being children that belong to God, but it, it has some specific richness that we need to point out. It literally reads, children of obedience. Now, you recall that phrase at the uh, in Ephesians 2, in describing our sinfulness, it says, and we were children of wrath. It's a, it's a poignant phrase, isn't it? Children of wrath. Well, that means that we, were, we belonged to wrath. Wrath had us. We were governed by wrath. We were headed for wrath. See, that's the way to put it, to say you're children of wrath. But here, children of obedience. Now, that's encouraging. So it means you belong to obedience. Obedience owns you now and governs you now. It's the source and spring of your life. Your parent is obedience, is what he's saying. That's really, that's a remarkable little phrase. Your parent is obedience. It's not a temporary accidental thing in your life. You're now children of obedience determined and molded by obedience. So be encouraged that if you belong to Christ... The work of the Holy Spirit in your life makes you a child of obedience. It means not only that you can change step by step, but you will change. That's who you are now. And the, using the word called here underscores that new status as well. As he who called you is holy. It points to God's grace and kindness that initiated, that found you and brought you to himself. His goodness in doing that. And, and just think of the one who called into existence light or called into existence the dry land. And he calls you into holiness. Wow. He calls you to be like himself. This is going to happen. See, It's going to happen. When the sovereign God calls something into existence, when he calls you into holiness, it's going to happen. Robert Layton, I'll quote a good bit from him this morning. He's a 17th century commentator. One of the old guys, you know, old Puritan writer. And he, he wrote a huge commentary on First Peter. It's kind of his compendium of the Christian life, really. But he has some beautiful quotes, and he's quoted by many other people. Uh, writing on First Peter or, or other things. But he makes this statement, the essence of religion consists in the imitation of him whom we worship. That's a great statement. The essence of religion, the essence of Christianity is imitating the one that you worship. 
Not just going through empty praise, but seeking in every way to conform your ways, your attitude, your character to this glorious, wonderful God. In fact, you will not and do not worship Him unless you want to conform to Him, you see. It's the greatest honor that you can pay God. It's, I want to be like you. I want to have the, your character in my life. And without that honor, where is our worship? So his character is our model. And when you think about being holy, I want to put it in practical terms. There's a lot of aspects of God's holiness. Some of them have to do with his being you know, lifted up and majestic and glorious and unlike anything else. Okay, But we're talking about the aspect of his holiness that has to do with his character. And I could put it this way. Holiness is, to, is a way to describe God's extreme radical goodness. Okay? It's a way to describe his extreme radical goodness. It's goodness that's so good it scares us. <laughs> it's goodness that's so good it makes us weak. We, we can't stand it. We, we fall dead before it. It's that good. It's goodness that makes the angels even hide their faces. He is that good. And he wants us to be good like that. Like he is good. Not just like people are good. He wants us to be good like he is good. He is only good, always good. It's pervasive in everything he does. He is unlimited in his goodness and unceasing in his goodness. And even this unlimited, unceasingly good God says, be good like me. Be holy like me. And you see, the, the commandments reflect this goodness, don't they? I mean, it's good to honor your parents. It's good, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. It's good not to hurt people. Right? That's a good thing. Never to hurt anybody in any way. It's good not to take other people's stuff. It's good not to commit adultery. It's good not to lie to one another or lie about one another. It's good not to wish you had other people's stuff instead of them. And there's so many little things that are said there in the Old Testament. It's good not to treat old, it is good to treat old people with kindness and dignity. It's good not to put something in front of a blind man to see if he will trip. Yeah, there's a command about that. It's good to treat your animals with kindness. It's good if you even find your enemy's ox has escaped, then even though he's your enemy, you take it back to him. That's a good thing. And it reflects the amazing goodness of God. That he is even good to those who reject him and hate him. So, as Jesus then summed up. Now, granted, if you read Leviticus, there's some weird ones too. <laughs> weird ones because God was giving them kind of kindergarten lessons on how to stay separate from other nations. And kindergarten lessons on how to think of themselves as being clean and, and, uh, and, and then some things particular to their culture. But you can see the wonderful goodness that just courses through the commands of the Old Testament. 
And Jesus then put it in, uh, reframed this whole summary as he said the whole Old Testament is about loving God and loving one another. And he says, here's a new commandment, love one another as I have loved you. There's your new standard of holiness, you know, the new standard of goodness. Be good like I'm good, okay? Be holy like I'm good. Love others as I've loved you. So you see this, this coursing goodness of God that's burst forth in the amazing sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that's why, because of his extreme goodness, he cannot and will not ignore sin. He wouldn't be good or holy if he did. And when Christ associated himself with our sin, then he had to be punished. And it shows that God will finally destroy anything that's not devoted to goodness. Our only hope is that he rescues us and begins to change us and cause us to be devoted to goodness. But then his goodness also manifests itself in that he would sacrifice his own son and causes us then to be devoted to his goodness. And I ask you that, are you devoted to be holy as God is holy? Are you devoted to be good like God has, has good? Robert Layton says, children who resemble their fathers as they grow up in years, they grow the more like to them. Okay, a little bit of his Elizabethan language here. Thus the children of God do increase in their resemblance and are daily more and more renewed after his image. And there's the picture for us, more and more to be renewed after his image. And I like the way he puts this. This arises from their pious imitation and study of conformity. I'm going to change the word pious to devoted, but leave you with these phrases. Your devoted imitation of God and your study of conformity to him. Could that describe us? I'm devoted to imitating God and I'm studying conformity to God. It is my life's work to be conformed to this God. So it, there's, there are these two aspects then so far of nonconformity and family likeness. But then I have the next one as awe. Because he says, if you call on him as father who judges, he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Fear basically means this, maintaining the highest regard for God in everything that you do. Okay? Maintaining the highest regard and honor and reverence for God in everything you do. It's, it, awe, I think, is a great way to put it. Astonishment, a constant admiration and amazement and respect and reverence that includes an enjoyment and a delight so that in every way I want to please Him and manifest Him and know Him and make Him known. That's what it is to fear God. So that His ways are more important than anything else in your life. And being under His care and trusting yourself and being under His authority is more important than anything else in your life. And so Proverbs twenty-eight fourteen says, Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. There's the contrast. Am I softened and respectful and honoring and delighted in God, or is my heart hardened? And he gives two reasons for this fear in this section. The first is a regard for God's impartial judgment. He says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. 
So one of the motives for our fearing Him, one of the motives for honoring Him is that He is the Father who judges impartially. Again, Leighton says, if you profess the true religion and call Him Father, but if you are devoid of this fear, that is, and live as disobedient children. In other words, if you're just a Christian in name, you say, I'm a believer, but literally you don't read His Word, study His Word, seek to do His will. You're just living your own life. He says, He will not spare you because of that relation, but rather punish you the more severely because you pretended to be his, his children and yet obeyed him not. Therefore, you will find him your judge and an impartial judge of your works. So he's impartial. He, he doesn't let you off the hook. If you live a life completely apart from his will and you say, yeah, but I said I was a Christian. I was at church. I taught Sunday school one time. I did. No. Jesus himself says in Matthew 7, they'll say, Lord, we did this in your name. We did that in your name. And he said, I never knew you. We were never intimate. You were never intimate with me. You never had your life in my hands. And so this causes us to honor him. He is our father, but he is the father who judges impartially according to each one's works. But you see... It doesn't require perfection on our part. And as we at least sincerely are seeking to obey him, we are encouraged that the judge that we face one day is our father to whom we belong. And if if we belong to Jesus, then we belong to the father and he takes us for his own. And judgment occurs in the context of we're his children and we're forgiven of our sins in Christ So there's no free ticket as though you can present a life of total rebellion uh, because you said you were a Christian. But there is this wonderful encouragement that because he is my father, because he has done so much for me, and because he will one day judge me, I want that judgment to be one that pleases him. I want to honor him with my life. I want him to smile in that day because he's my father who gave his son for me. Which brings us to the other motivation. It's a regard not only for God's judgment, but a regard for his loving sacrifice. The cross, you see, is what destroys our enmity against God. He says, knowing that you were ransomed. To consider how expensive was the death of Christ. It's called this more, not like just perishable things like silver and gold, but with precious blood. He's talking about the expensive, the lavish expenditure for us. And Leighton talks about this, that we can say to desire, we can say to sin, unless you can offer me something beyond that price that was given for me on the cross, I cannot listen to you. (laughs) What have you got to offer? What what expenditure of lavish kindness and goodness? No. He says, He paid my ransom with His blood. His matchless love has freed me from miserable captivity of sin, has forever fastened me to His obedience. Let Him alone dwell and rule within me. Never let Him go forth from my heart, who for my sake refused to come down from the cross. I love that. Let Him never leave my heart 
Let me never cast him forth and embrace the very thing for which he died to set me free. The very thing that he spent himself lavishly so that I would not have to live that way anymore. So, be holy, be in awe of him and put yourself under his care and authority in light of the precious blood of Christ that was spent for you. In light of the the lavish love of God shown in Christ Jesus. And again, I remind you of that that, uh, verse in Psalm 130. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. There's nothing that will attach you more closely to God, more closely to uh, turn away from evil desire than the love of Christ and the forgiveness that He offers through His precious blood. This brings us to the last thing that he talks about here in verses 22 through and following is that uh, the love uh, of holiness. And we've already touched upon that. It, it really uh, seeps out of even talking about God's extreme goodness, doesn't it? You, you can hardly talk about love. If, if uh, I mean, you can hardly talk about holiness without talking about love. But the way he describes it here, uh, and just continuing to talk about the life of holiness, he says, you purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. And interesting, isn't it, that this obedience to the truth, that is, believing in the good news of Christ's death and resurrection, receiving this for yourself, has the ultimate, the real goal of bringing you to a sincere love of the brethren, a sincere brotherly love. So submitting to the gospel of Jesus Christ lands you at that point. When you submit yourself to his salvation, to his care and his treatment and his healing and his reconstruction, this purifies you for a sincere family love of God's people. That's what it does. That's what it does. When you submit to the gospel, it begins to purify you from, the way I would put it, it purifies you from meanness, M-E-N-E-S-S. It gets to the root of the point of your life that you're living for yourself, and it, and it blows that up. It blows up the me castle that we've been constructing. It breaks me out of the me dungeon and starts enable me to take my first baby steps in sincere love for God and a love for others because of God. Obedience to the truth gets to the heart of what I am and who I am. The gospel. And it's the beauty of who God is that we see, and we see that I'm opposed to this glorious God. I'm not like Him in His radical selflessness. It's the beginning of true worship, true admiration of God for the rest of your life. And so, He says, we're born again by this abiding Word, this Word that has blown us apart, this Word that has unveiled the glory and beauty of Jesus and the glory and beauty of God to us. And He calls it a living and abiding Word to talk about how powerful it is. And it continues this gospel to work in your life and to continue to set you free. It's a life-altering word, a, a, a reconstructing word. It changes the landscape of your life like it changed the landscape of the earth in Genesis 1. And so, by His grace 
In holiness, we can always be on the attack against evil desire, always cutting off its supply lines, always refusing entrance to it, always closing the gates of this destructive enemy. We live in nonconformity. It means that we will be able to bear the very likeness of God in all parts of our life. He says, in all of your conduct. How wonderful to have the holiness of God permeate our lives like a peach cobbler permeates a house. How about that? The character of God influencing your thoughts and your words and all of your activities. Your whole personality beginning to be affected by the holiness of God. Maintained by this awe of Him as your judge, this awe of Him as your Redeemer and issuing in glorious love. This is the holiness to which he calls you. All powerful God, when he rescues you, he rescues you for this end, for you to be like him. You must, you must, you will, because we're talking about the salvation of the almighty God. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the amazing prospect Really unbelievable, but yet we're called to believe it. That you will make us like yourself. That we will more and more bear your glory. That our love will look more and more like the love of Christ. The love of God for us. Lord, we pray that this work will continue as we give ourselves to your word. This living and abiding word by which we were born again. How could we then say that we ignore this word if it's the very means by which we've been born from above? It is our source of light, our source of seeing more and more of your greatness and goodness so that we more and more might conform to your ways. How can we be without your word? How can we be without prayer humbling ourselves, crying out against our sin, believing you that you will deliver us from sin, crying out that we might more and more love those around us and spend ourselves gladly, praying, Lord, when we have no feelings at all, when we are just completely knocked out emotionally, praying when we hardly even want to pray or can pray, just moaning to you almost, Lord, Save me, save me. Oh, Lord, make us sincere at at bottom. Make us sincere seekers of God and His character. Bless us, save us, oh, Lord. You're the one who calls us to this holiness. We are encouraged that you will bring it about, this work that you've begun, that you'll complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America.
break radiant through the shades of night and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away?